What we're doing now is I'm the campus pastor over at Central Bible as we've started working with them, uh, working to revitalize the church there and several families from here are over there and that's where Pastor Jay is right now preaching um, as they just start their service. Uh, we've enjoyed our work over there. Many of you have asked how it's going. It's going well. We're so grateful for the people there that have welcomed us. And they are energized and excited by what they see. I get comments like, it's great to see kids running around again and things like that. And so uh, we're also very thankful for the families over there as we are working in ministry together. I love working with my wife and with my family. And as we've received ministry opportunities, people will say, what's next? Or they'll have a suggestion. One of my filters is, is this the kind of ministry I can do alongside my wife? Uh, we've been doing ministry together since the day we met, uh, because when I first met her, she was my interpreter in Russia as I taught over there. So uh, it's very natural for us to work together. I love working with my wife and, and with our kids and the relationship that brings. And I was thinking as, as I was preparing for this uh, sermon of early years of our marriage, and sitting with my wife on the couch and, and watching a movie uh, that you, you may have seen, and we were watching it probably because I thought she needed to see it. Uh, it was Rocky Four. So, sounds like a few of you are familiar with this movie. If you're not, and you're completely oblivious to who Rocky Balboa is, in the movies, he's a fighter, he's a boxer, and uh, he's, he frequently risks himself in the ring, and he is married to a wife that is concerned for his safety uh, because of how he fights. Well, in Rocky Four, uh, this, uh, this Russian comes to America. His name is Ivan Drago, and he comes to fight anyone who will face him. And so Rocky's friend and, and former opponent, Apollo Creed, decides he's going to fight Ivan Drago and show him a thing or two. Uh, but it doesn't go so well for Apollo Creed because Ivan Drago not only defeats him, but Apollo Creed dies in the ring. And so Rocky has to figure out what he's going to do next. And what he decides to do next, um, unfortunately, without consulting his wife, uh, he decides that he's going to go to Russia and fight Ivan Drago. And uh, there's this scene where Rocky has made up his mind. He's leaving. He's at the bottom of the stairs, and his wife's at the top. And he's telling her, I'm off to Siberia to train. And she just looks at him and says, you can't win. And... He walks away, he leaves, and he goes to Siberia, and we go through this whole training sequence. If you know Rocky movies, great music, you know, he's uh, splitting wood, he's carrying logs, he's running up mountains, he's doing all these things that Rocky does. Um, but there's this moment uh, where his wife drives up, she comes, and she gets out of a car, and he just looks at her, and she says, I'm with you no matter what. He says, no matter what? She says, no matter what. And I remember sitting there with Yulia and saying that, just please tell me that you'll be with me no matter what. Just stay with me. And uh, so through our adventures of me saying, hey, we're, how about we move to Salem? Uh, it's, time for us to go, it's time for us to go overseas. Uh, I think we need to evacuate and come back. Going through this whole process that we've been through, She's been faithful to be with me, but I also appreciate this so much because I'm not always an easy person to be with, and she has a forgiving spirit over and over again. I am that husband that's the kind of guy where she gives me a list of things to get and says, and don't forget this, 
And I come back, and that, that's the one thing I forgot. <laughs> and I have to say, I'm sorry. And again and again, she forgives me. I'm so thankful for a wife that is always with me, supporting me, and so forgiving of me. And I know many of us can say that about our spouses. Well, if we can be thankful for a spouse like that, we can be even more thankful for a God who is always with us, who promises to never leave us or forsake us, and who always forgives us. His forgiveness is abundant, and we can rejoice in that God. And it is that God that the psalmist David invites us to look at today. And we're going to look at that together in our text, which is Psalm 32. So turn there if you would, and I'm going to read that psalm for us as we begin this, uh, this morning. Psalm 32 and verse 1. David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Well, let's look to the Lord in prayer as we begin this this morning. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray that as we look at your word today, that you would give me the words to say, that you would use your word to convict hearts that you help each of us to understand what we can learn from this passage this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a journey through the Psalms, and you can see in your introduction there are many different kinds of Psalms. And this is our third Sunday on this, and we're in our third different kind of Psalm. Last week we looked at a lament, and this week we're looking Um, at a different kind of psalm. This psalm, Psalm 32, um, has elements of both a wisdom psalm and a thanksgiving psalm. As David gives instructions about how to respond to God with a repentant heart, and he also responds in thanksgiving and joy to the forgiveness that God gives. Formally, this time of psalm is called a penitential psalm. It really has to do with someone coming before the Lord with confession and forgiveness and asking God to heal. But as he goes through this process, he's also giving us wisdom that we can learn from. You'll see there um, several different penitential psalms that are in the Word of God. The most well-known, perhaps, is Psalm 51. Well, we look at this and we see this theme of forgiveness, blessed are the forgiven. And we have, this, we have a great knowledge of forgiveness if we are followers of Christ, because we know that we are completely forgiven when we are saved. Everything is forgiven, past, present, and future. 
So there's the forgiveness of salvation. And we know that one day we will be made perfect and there will be no more sin. So we look forward to that day when there is no more sin. And then there is this in-between time, in-between those times. And this is really what this psalm deals with. It is in this time where the Spirit of God is working on our hearts in this process we call sanctification, making us more like him. That's what this psalm speaks to. It is, it is that process where he is making us more like him. And so that's what we'll see here today. It's what David invites us to look at. So as we look at this, we see first um, the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of forgiveness. Great blessing or happiness is found in the forgiveness of our God. Now I use the word happiness because as you look through this and you study uh, this term blessing, many commentators will say another way you could say this is happiness. And I'm aware in our, in our context, we don't often use the term um, blessing. Uh, we don't usually walk out the door and say, I'm so blessed today, right? You'd be more likely to say, I'm happy today. So it's a term that really we understand a little bit better, but we need to think about it because uh, happiness, our happiness can be rather fleeting. And this isn't talking about the kind of happiness that you have when, say, the Mariners are on a 13-game winning streak, right? And believe me, I'm happy about that. But as I discussed with one of my sons today, that happiness can be rather fleeting because they will lose, and they will still have losing streaks, and then we are not happy. So we find that our happiness is up and down depending on our circumstances. But that's not the kind of happiness we're talking about here. This is a deep, lasting, abiding happiness that does not go away. And it is that kind of happiness, that kind of blessedness that those who are forgiven by God receive. That's the kind of happiness that we're talking about here. And so the psalmist you'll see and David in these first couple of verses has some repetition. Uh, And there are actually four areas in today's psalm where there is repetition. This is something that we see in Hebrew poetry. As we've talked about, Hebrew poetry is a little bit different than the poetry we are used to. And this is one of the marks of it. Uh, We see three different terms for sin, forgiveness, later for confession, and also for God's instruction. So first we see three different terms for sin in our text, and you'll see it here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And so we have transgression, sin, and iniquity. Three different terms. And as we look at this, there's a slightly different meaning to each of these. When we look at transgression, it has more to do with willful disobedience or a rebellion against God. So it is a very serious kind of sin. When we talk about the word sin, this is more the common word that is used most often throughout the Bible in regard to sin. It is a similar word that we would see in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It could cover any kind of sin, but also, of course, would include those kinds of sin that we would encounter every day, sins of anger, sins of, of, of fear, um, and different things like that, uh, that just happen because we're sinful people, but are not necessarily premeditated. And then we also see iniquity, and iniquity has to do with perversion, evil, or disrespect for God. So you see these three different terms of sin, and you think, why does he use them? And there's some different reasons. One is it's poetry, so he's being colorful. 
but a- another reason is because he wants us to see that God forgives sin, all kinds of sin, every kind of sin. There is no sin that he does not forgive. And that's a great assurance to us. We also three, see three different terms for forgiveness here. We see forgiven, sin is covered, and the Lord counts no iniquity. And these also give us three different looks at forgiveness. So when we think of forgiven, the, the picture there is really of a burden that's being lifted. That weight of sin, that burden is being lifted from us. Those of you who have read Pilgrim's Progress might think of Pilgrim and the burden that is lifted from him. Uh, another illustration, I know in the Pacific Northwest, many of you backpack or have backpacked. So if you backpack, and I'm not talking about a day hike, if you're going into the woods and you plan to camp there for a couple of weeks, you're bringing a rather heavy pack with you. It's probably going to weigh between 50 and 100 pounds, depending on whether or not you're carrying all of your kids' stuff or not as well. And for some reason, we always seem to go uphill when we camp in the woods. I don't know how that works. It's never level. Uh, I like to go up first and, and down going back. I think that's the best direction. But if you've carried that heavy pack, you're walking in for miles, and there's this moment maybe when you arrive at your campsite where you lift that pack from your shoulders and you feel like you could fly if your legs weren't completely destroyed from the hike. But you feel that weight that's just lifted from you. And that's the example of the forgiveness that we receive from God. It is lifting that weight from our shoulders, that weight of the sin that weighs us down. Not lifting it temporarily, but lifting it away forever. It also speaks here of sin who is co- that is covered and And this is a term that points to uh, what we call atonement. And the Israelites would have known in their worship, it is the blood that covers the sacrifice. It is the blood that covers their sin. And when it mentions covered here, it is not covered temporarily. It is covered, it is put away, never to be seen again. And we also have the term here, um, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Counts. I like this term probably because my background is in accounting. And so this is the term counts or reckon that we see in the Bible. It is also uh, these verses that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4 when he's both talking about Abraham and our forgiveness by faith. We see in Romans chapter 4 verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so what this means is that our forgiveness is not accomplished by our own works. It is accomplished by faith. It is accomplished when God counts his righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is put to our account in the same way one would make an accounting transaction. It's as if you have a credit card statement and you see the whole bill in front of you in one moment and the next moment it is gone. There's a credit that has made it all vanish. As an accountant... 
I also recognize that there's this thing called double entry accounting, right? What it means is where there is a credit, there must be a debit. And it's important for us to remember that forgiveness is never free. If something was credited to our account, it had to be debited to someone else's account. We can receive the righteousness of Christ because our sins were placed on the account of Christ. He paid for our sins. That's the other side of the payment. If someone owes you $100 and you forgive them, that $100, guess what? It just cost you $100. You paid the $100 so that they could be forgiven. In a similar way, Christ paid the price so that we could be forgiven. And because of what he has done, not because of what we have done, we receive the forgiveness of God. It is counted to us. It is put on our account. So we see three different looks at forgiveness there. Now, why these things in threes? And I will say it's because he wants us to know that we are completely and totally forgiven. If I were to say to you, uh, I couldn't find it. I looked everywhere. It's not there in regard to something I lost. You would understand it's really not there. If I lost something and I said I couldn't find it and stopped, you might say, well, look for it again. But when I say I couldn't find it, I looked everywhere, it's not there. You understand it's completely, it must be completely gone. So that emphasis is what David wants us to know about the forgiveness of Christ. It is complete. As much as our sin is, every one of our sins are forgiven. Also, his, his right, his forgiveness is complete and covers each one of those sins. His forgiveness is complete. Um, God forgives all sin. And he wants us to know the complete nature of God's forgiveness to us. Now, as you look at this text and you come to the last verse, there's this term, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There is no deceit. First John 1.8 might come to your mind. If, we say, if you say that you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. Um, this is coming before God in an open and transparent way where I say, here I am, God, here is my sin. I bring it before you. And the picture that David gives here of the blessing, the happiness is in people who are sinners and we are all sinners, but are completely forgiven by God and therefore can live a life of openness and transparency with God, knowing that there is no sin which we can commit that hasn't been paid for by the blood of Christ on the cross. Therefore, we can be open with him and we can bring our sin before him and we can say, God, change that in me. We don't have to hide. And in that is great blessing and happiness. Now, this psalm that we see here is frequently associated with Psalm 51. We don't know for sure that David is talking about the same incident, but Psalm 51 is a psalm where David is asking forgiveness for God because of the sin that he committed with Bathsheba and adultery and because he murdered her husband. He was confronted by the prophet Nathan after he hid this sin for maybe over a year. Now, we don't know for sure if these two are firmly attached. Some suspect that they are. Uh, We do know in Psalm 51, in the process of asking for forgiveness, He says in in verse 12 of Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and 
uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. So regardless of whether this incident is the same one, we see David doing this. He knows he has been forgiven and he is teaching others the way of the Lord and he is rejoicing in the salvation that he has in the Lord. And that was what we see him doing here in this psalm. And so in this way, he begins to describe to us uh, his own journey. And this is where we see the, the agony of unconfessed sin. God does not allow his children to become comfortable in their sin. This is his loving hand of discipline to his children. David says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. These are very vivid terms that David is using, talking about what he went through as a result of his sin. In 2 Samuel, where it talks about his sin with Bathsheba, it doesn't talk about what he was going through in his inner struggle, as historical narratives often do. They leave that part out. But it could not have been easy for David, as we see by these words here. Uh, these, these terms describe something that could be physical, or it could be merely spiritual. We don't know what kind of struggle he went through, but we know it had to be very difficult for him as he went through this time where he felt the the hand of God was heavy upon him. Yet for a long time, he kept silent. He kept silent. So what does that mean? You know, sometimes that could mean that we just completely abandon God and don't talk to him at all. But as king of Israel, I can't imagine that that was David. As a leader of the nation of Israel, he had to be making prayers before God, even public prayers before God. But there was this area of his life he wasn't acknowledging and he wasn't talking to God about. And that can be us. We're talking about keeping silent from our sin. We can still be having devotions. We can still be praying to God about a lot of things and talking to him. But there's this one area where we're not having any conversation. We're keeping silent about it. Maybe you have an area like that in your life that God's convicting you of. And in those times, because we are his children, God's hand of discipline um, comes upon us. He does not let us be comfortable in our sin. He knows that our greatest joy is found in a relationship with him. And he wants nothing to come between that relationship between him and us. His hand of discipline on us, that heavy hand is actually his hand of mercy, his hand of grace to us, because it's drawing us back to where our greatest happiness is found. And as we feel that mercy and as we feel that heavy hand, we see his mercy and he draws us back to a point where we confess and we acknowledge our sin. So if you feel that hand of discipline in your life, you feel the twinge of conscience when you are going through a time of sin, know that that is evidence that you belong to God. And that is him reaching out to you. Where we should be concerned is if we sin and we feel nothing. We feel no twinge of conscience. We feel no heaviness in our heart. That's when you should wonder if you truly belong to God or not. Because those whom he loves, he will not allow to be comfortable in their sin. He will pull them back to himself. 
When we offer God true confession and true repentance for our sin, God always forgives and our agony is relieved. Look at verse five. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So again, here we have this group of threes. I acknowledged my sin. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. There's nothing particularly special about the three different ways that he says these things. But what he is saying, I think, is that this was a serious confession of sins. This was true repentance. This wasn't just a casual mention. You know, Americans, we say, I'm sorry, a lot. I've noticed this since I came back from the country where I was, where we, they usually did not say anything about being sorry. It was known as a sign of weakness in that culture. But in this culture, if you come within five feet of, feet of somebody in a supermarket, somebody's going to say, oh, sorry, sorry, you know. And we say it a lot, very casually, um, and just, wow, sometimes way too much. But this isn't the kind of sorry we're talking about here right? This is not uh, coming to God and saying, hey, sorry about that, God. This and the psalmist mentioning this three different ways shows that what is in his heart is a true repentance, wanting to turn away from his sin, seeing this in his life and, and saying, this is not something which I want to see in my life. It is taking ownership of his sin and saying, this is my fault. This is my responsibility. We, we live in a culture as well, especially if you're like me, it's easy to blame other people for our sin, right? When I'm going to the grocery store and I forget that one thing that Yulia told me I needed, I can give her 10 different reasons why I forgot it. But really what I need to do is say, uh, yeah, that's on me. I'm sorry. And we can find all kinds of reasons, our spouse, our family, our job, our environment, our children, that cause us to sin. But what David's talking about here is an ownership, just coming before God, dropping all of that and saying, this is on me. I sinned, as David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. And the great thing is when we come before God in that way, he forgives. We see at the end of this passage, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He always forgives. And what a wonderful truth that is that we can rejoice in. And so we also see, as we look in verses six and seven, the deliverance of the ungodly, the deliverance, uh, or I'm sorry, the deliverance of the godly. The godly are not those who are perfect, but those who confess sin to God with hearts of repentance and do not let sin harden their hearts. We see that David says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. So understand, as David's defining those who are godly here, what is the characteristic? It's not somebody who's perfect. It's not somebody who has their life together. He's talking about someone who's godly. He's talking about somebody who will quickly and openly confess their sin to God. Someone who is transparent before God about their sin. Someone who is not perfect, but is coming before God and saying, change me and make me more like you. The people around you today are not perfect people. You may not know them. You may think that they're perfect. And I don't know everything about you either, but I know if you all are a lot like me, then there's a lot of work that God is doing in your life right now. And that describes all of us. 
And the psalmist is saying that those who are godly are those who are turning to God and confessing their sin. And he urges us to offer a prayer at a time when God may be found. I think that's doing it quickly. Understanding we don't want the sin to harden our hearts. We want to confess our sin to God. We don't want to be hardened in our sin so that we can't turn from it. We want to turn to him instead of turning away from him. And so he calls us to do that at a time when he may be found. And when we do that, um, he is our hiding place. He is the one who preserves us from trouble and surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. Uh, God is our hiding place. That doesn't mean necessarily he's going to protect you in every way physically, but he will protect what is most precious, which is your soul is a soul that says, I am forgiven by God, and that is the greatest gift. It is a a soul that knows that no matter what happens to me physically, I know I will be with God eternally. And in that place, we are hidden, and in that place, we have great peace. I was at Central the other day talking to a couple of ladies. One had had lost her her daughter a few years ago. Another one in the last couple of years had lost her husband. And I loved it when one of those ladies looked at me and said, I'm really not afraid to die. I know where I'm going to be. And I love, I love that thought and that spirit because there is somebody who is secure. God is her hiding place and she knows who has her and where she is going. And that is a wonderful thing. God cannot be our hiding place in the same way if there's sin that separates us. We can't run to him to hide in him when there is something that comes between and that, is, that breaks our relationship with him. That's why confession is important and leaning into his forgiveness because we want him fully to protect us and we want to fully hide in him. In the next section in verses eight and nine, we also see the, the teachableness of the godly, the teachableness of the godly. Uh, David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, as, as he talks here, you see a change of voice, and this is probably a change of voice going from David to God. This is God speaking to those that David is writing to and saying, I will teach you. Now, here's the last place where we see three different terms. I will instruct you. I will teach you. I will counsel you. Uh, and so what is this saying? Rather than looking at the, the small differences between each of these terms, I think we need to see that this shows that God gives us clear and complete instruction in his word. Clear and complete instruction. He will counsel us. He will teach us in every way. And it is clear and understandable. Uh, his, His instruction to us is clear within his word. We can read his word. We can see his way. There should be no question what his desire is for us, what he asks us to do, and the strength that he gives us to do that, because it is in his word, and his word is understandable. 99.9% of his word is easily understood, and there's this little small portion that even great theologians struggle with. But when you open God's word, you can understand what he wants for you. The question is not, do I understand his instruction? but rather, will I willingly follow his instruction and confess my sin when I fall? We see in verse nine, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So the encouragement is to not be like an animal. Animals that, while they don't speak our language, 
We try to get them to do what we want them to do. And like a horse or a mule, a bit, a bridle that, that turns their head a certain way, that causes them to go where you want to go. David is saying, don't be like this. And he's even saying, look at my example. Don't go through what I went through. Uh, look, at, look at this. Look at this, uh, uh, the time when God was heavy on his heart. And it's really God saying to us that he does not desire that we act in that way. He does not want to have to inflict heavy discipline on us. God loves to use those who are willing to be used by him. When I was in Russia, I learned some lessons about working with Russian men in particular. We'd have these classes, and, and a lot of what we did was training men to be pastors and ministers. And we'd have 15 men in a class, and we'd have this class. And then I would have an assignment, which was due at a particular time. And out of like 15 guys, there'd be maybe three that would turn it in on time. And I remember being kind of frustrated with that. And my, my good friend and, and pastor, Pastor Alexei, would, would say to me, Kevin, you need to remember, these are Russian men. They need a kick. You have to kick them. You have to tell them, hey, get the assignment in. You have to remember, you have to remind them to get the assignment in. If they don't get the assignment in, you have to say, where's the assignment? You need to give it to me. And he would say that about many things. We have a small group and he would say, you need to give them a kick or they won't show up to your house. So you need to remind them several times. If they don't come, then you need to go the next day and say, why weren't you at the small group? Where have you been? This is the culture there, right? They respond. It's, it's not saying anything negatively about Russians, but if you're from that culture, you know, you know. There's, there's a whole culture of you respond when you really have to, and then you do it. And it was sometimes that way in churches. But I don't like giving kicks. And I would say to these guys in our class, hey, I don't want to have to make you do this. I am, I am not your mother, and I'm not going to hold your hand. And t- you're in this class because you want to serve the Lord, so get your assignment in on time. Over time, we actually cut the class in half, focusing on the men who had that desire, who really wanted to be there and were really doing the work. And it's important to see, as you look around at people that are serving the Lord and you see examples in the Word of God, that the kind of people that God uses most are the kind of people that willingly serve Him. The kind of people that say, like Isaiah did, Here am I, send me, I will go. That's the kind of people that God uses. And it's a reminder to us, right, that we don't need to wait for that kick from God. But our spirit needs to be one that says, God, I will serve you. I am willing to go. Um, Here am I. Here am I. Um, Send me. And uh, I hope that is uh, the spirit that you have. Well, as we look at this we see in verses 10 and 11, finally, the joy of forgiveness. The joy of forgiveness. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. I know you've heard this from this pulpit many times. This is that word chesed. And it is the deepest and most rich term for the love of God in the Bible. Um, It is the love that is rich, loyal, never ending. uh, The love of our God for his children. I often read the the Jesus storybook Bible to my children, and they say it there, the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. 
the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of our God. It is wonderful. It is rich. It is loyal. It surrounds those of us who are in him, who know his forgiveness, who are living openly and without deceit before him. We are surrounded by his rich and wonderful steadfast love. And when we are surrounded by that love, we can shout for joy to God because of all that he has done for us. And we can live transparent lives. We can say, uh, as David did in a later psalm, uh, in Psalm 139, verse 23, David said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I don't know what your prayer life looks like, but in mine, I have to remind myself uh, that when I talk to God, I need to talk about more than just the various requests and different prayer words we might say. And I need to talk about what's going on in my heart. I need to invite him to look and see if there is something that, that is not pleasing to him, if there's something that he wants to change. And with a willing spirit, say, Lord, I want that removed. I don't want that to be there. Please change me and make me more like you. And I can tell you by experience and by looking at God's word, when you come before him with that prayer saying, God, change me, make me more like you, he always answers. He always changes us and he is faithful in making us more like him. And we experience that wonderful love of God that comes to those who know they are forgiven by him. And what a wonderful thing that is. I hope that you can look at your life today. If you see an area where God's hand is heavy in you, I encourage you to respond to him. I encourage you to willingly follow his instruction And I also encourage you, rejoice. Rejoice in the forgiveness you have before God today. Stand with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I am so thankful for for men like David that shared their experience with us, the humble spirit in that king that shared his deepest faults with his people and also with us. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to learn from that. And Lord, I pray that if there are any of us that feel your heavy hand upon us, Lord, that we will respond, that we will come before you as David did and confess our sins in true repentance and say, oh God, change me. Make me more like you. Lord, I pray that that would be our hearts today. Help us to listen to your instruction. Help us to willingly do what you ask us to do. Father, we thank you for your steadfast love, that never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love that surrounds us who are in you. Thank you that you are the God that never leaves us or forsakes us, but shows us your mercy continually. We rejoice. We rejoice in your wonderful forgiveness this morning. We pray that you will go with us as we leave from here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.